A reading from the book of Exodus. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. 
and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together as we stand. Almighty Father, as we come now to this story, it's a strange one. It's a strange story. Um, your, your stories are strange. So foreign and yet so close uh, because they open up our own lives in ways that we do not expect but are nearer to ourselves than we even know. So Father, we need you to act nearer to ourselves than we could ever know. We need you to work in us by your Holy Spirit. Grant us to hear what is true, to not hear what's not. Anything I say that's silly or stupid, please keep me from saying it, and please keep us from believing it, but all that is from your word, grant us to trust very, very deeply and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, and it's helpful if you turn back in your service sheets to uh, page 8 and 9. We're going to take two weeks with this reading, so we're not going to get to the last paragraph in that reading where, uh, when, it, when God talks about his name. We're going to save that for next week. Um, but we're going to focus on this incident between Moses and God around the, bur the burning bush. Um, it's a turning point in the story. Uh, because this is the moment in the book of Exodus where God very abruptly takes uh, obvious control of the narrative. So before this, in the book of Exodus, in chapters 1 and 2, uh, humans, the camera angle, so to speak, is on humans. Pharaoh, Moses, several others. The, the uh, camera focus is on the humans who seem to be driving the story forward with their actions. Uh, but after this moment in Exodus, it's not that the humans uh, uh, are no longer in view, but rather God and his action drives the whole agenda. It's a turning point in the book of Exodus, and it's a decisive moment in the life of Moses. It's a decisive moment in the story of Exodus. It's a decisive moment in the whole history of the people of Israel. And it's a decisive moment in the whole big story of the Bible. So it's a really important moment. And the more I spend time with it, the more it seems to me a very subversive moment. Why do I say it's subversive? This story and all of the book of Exodus subverts something that I think a lot of us hold very deeply in our souls. It subverts the whole idea of our autonomy. What does that mean? Well, um, see if you can identify with this. It seems to me that in a lot of us, certainly in me, uh, there's a deeply held unspoken assumption that uh, I am supposed to be a capable person. Like, if everything's going well in my life, Jim should be fundamentally capable to deal with Jim's life. Right? Um, and, and 
if I am fundamentally capable for dealing with my life, and um, then it makes sense that I should be the primary navigator of my life. If I have the resources to make life work, then, then in, if everything's working well, I should use those resources to navigate my life to uh, where my life should end up. Maybe, probably, where I think my life should end up. I am fundamentally autonomous. Or I should be if life is going well. Now, like I said, I don't think we almost ever say it just like that, but there's something deep down we assume it. And most of us know that sometimes life doesn't go well, sometimes life gets off the rails, and, and when life is out of sync, when it's not normal, then those are the moments when maybe we need to depend on somebody else. Maybe we need to depend on another person when things are not going well, when life is not normal. Or maybe even we need to depend upon God when life is not going well and life is not normal. But when life is going well and life is going normal, I should rely upon the resources native within myself in order to navigate my life to my preferred future. We tend to believe that we are autonomous. And I bring all this up because Exodus... Certainly chapters one and two, and all the rest of it, is, it seems to me, designed to subvert that whole narrative. Because if you look at Exodus chapters one and two, where we have already been over these last weeks, what you find is that the most capable, powerful people use their resources and their power, and it's a train wreck. We talked about this last week. So chapter one, Pharaoh, really capable guy. And he uses his resources to navigate the course that he wants to uh, pursue, and it ends up enslaving a nation and trying to commit genocide. It's a train wreck. And then the person that we think is going to be the hero, this little baby boy that barely escapes that genocide, grows up to be Moses, and we want the trumpets to sound. Dun, 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 here we go. And then he uses his native capacities, his instinct, his courage, his ability, and his strength. And what is the result? He's a vigilante and a murderer, just like Pharaoh, but on a smaller scale. He is a train wreck. And so here we are at the beginning of chapter 3 of Exodus, and what we have is that Pharaoh and Moses and Egypt and Israel, all of them using their native resources, end up train wrecks, and we are left not with an autonomous people, but with a people groaning, verse 23, under the weight of slavery, crying out to God to intervene. What I'm trying to say is that in Exodus 1 and 2 and all through the rest of the book, these are stories designed to undermine and subvert this instinct that we have that we should be autonomous, that we should be, rely upon our own resources to navigate our own lives. Exodus just won't have it. It says it ends up in train wrecks. Now, I can imagine that somebody immediately says, deary me. I know nobody says deary me, but nonetheless, I like to say it. Deary me. Um, that is terribly pessimistic, Jim. Um, and anyway, well, if you think it's pessimistic, then just wait. Um, think about the century we're living in. And consider the fact that never in the history of human life has it, we, have we ever had so much resource, so much autonomous capability as the moment. 
Uh, education, technology, science, communication, I do not need to make that case. And yet, given all the remarkable resources that we have and the notable accomplishments we have made, we are nevertheless, these very gifts and remarkable resources are driving us in a variety of ways towards a train wreck. And you fill in the blank about which train wreck you feel like thinking about. The environment, politics, you name it. Leave that to you. So this story in this moment in Exodus is when God takes control of the narrative and says, your native autonomy is not a path to freedom, it is a path to disaster, but rather, when God takes control of the narrative, that's the path to freedom. Now, that's what I want to show you. I want to point out four observations about how God takes control of the narrative and wrests it from human hands. Here's the first. God takes control of Moses' life without asking permission. Look at verse 1. Now, remember the context here. Moses uh, previously uh, tried to start a revolution. We talked about that last week. He fails miserably, and he ends up a shepherd for something around 40 years in the middle of the desert. Um, so he is, for 40 years, completely sidelined from Egyptian and Israelite politics. And to this point, we have no indication in the text that he's a man of God, particularly. He may be somewhat, but he has never thus far prayed. There's no indication that he's looking for God. And he's just a shepherd minding his own business. And he's got a family, you know, things have worked out, you know, as well as they could have done. He, Moses, is not looking for God, but God ends up is looking for Moses. And therefore, in our story, God sort of sets a trap. Um, so shepherds in the desert, one of the things they need to do is they need to look out for fires. Uh, um, uh, sh sheep need grass. Grass likes to burn. Sheep are dumb. Put all that together, and that means if you're a shepherd, you got to look out for fires because you got to go away. So Moses is on the lookout for fires. He sees, you know, I don't know, smoke, or he sees light, or whatever it is that he sees, and he starts looking at it. But it doesn't do what fires normally do. It neither spreads nor dies. That piques his interest. And as he moves towards this fire that behaves oddly, God springs the trap. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see the bush, uh, God called to, the, called, excuse me, called to him out of the bush, saying, Moses, Moses, interestingly, God knows his name. And Moses says, awkwardly, here I am. Now, Moses' life never recovers from this incident. Uh, he heard God call to him. He responds, and the rest of his life is completely co-opted by God and God's purpose. And I put it that way in order to say this. It's important that we see that Moses is not seeking God. Moses is not particularly wanting to find God. Rather, Moses gets caught by God. And that is always, in different ways, how God takes control of the narrative of our lives. Um, some of you, many of you, will know uh, the name C.S. Lewis. Um, famously, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but he wrote other things, too. Um, and Lewis started off as an atheist uh, in Oxford, and he had no interest in God. He had actual, um, he was very interested in 
not God. Uh, he had all kinds of trouble with the idea of God. And he talks, when he talks about his conversion to Christianity, he talks, it, he talks about it almost like God trapped him or God co-opted his life. He says this, quote, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. But to me, at least as I was then, they might as well have talked about a mouse's search for a cat. And then he goes on to describe how he got caught. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College in Oxford, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. He's talking about God. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. And in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And I knelt and I prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Now, that's Moses. And if you are not looking for God, then this is a very important part of the story. God calls Moses to himself, and then God gives Moses a mission. And Moses is kind of wanting to do everything he can to get out of it. Verse 11, Moses says to God, who am I, can you choose somebody else, that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but God responded, but I will be with you. So God chases him down, co-ops his life. And how can that be a good thing? Well, the, there's a little... There's a little clue in that last phrase, but I will be with you. And that brings up the second observation of how God takes control of the narrative. God takes control of the narrative by pursuing his people out of an almost unexplainable kind of love. Look back at the text because I want you to see the engaged affection that God has for Israel and for Moses. Look at verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up. Now, the Lord co-opts Moses' life without asking permission. And when we think of it that way, it, it almost sounds like a tyrant, right? Isn't that what a tyrant does? However... God is taking control of Moses' narrative and of, e and of Israel's narrative out of his deep and almost unexplainable love for his people. In this text, God is not an absentee father, and he's not a kind of uh, disconnected parent. In this story, there's these motion words and these visual words. God sees, God knows, God hears. And it's like God leans forward, listening to Israel's desperate cry. It's like God crouches down, right down into the dirt, so to speak, of their suffering. It's like God is a parent who bends down on his knees and clasps the chin of Israel and looks into their tear-streaked eyes 
and says, I'm looking straight at you and I am very, very close because I love you. A bunch of years later, um, Moses uh, is talking to Israel about why it is that God uh, loves Israel. Why it is that God chose Israel. And it's a, it's a remarkable passage. It's in Deuteronomy. Uh, God's answer for why God loves Israel is, to my mind, a little funny. Because he says, listen, Israel, don't imagine that I loved you because you're strong. Let's face it, you're not. Listen, Israel, don't imagine that I loved you because you're righteous, because, let's face it, you're not. And then God says, Israel, I loved you because I loved you. Which, as a reader, it kind of drives me crazy. What do you mean? That's no reason. Come on. Get back down to it. But it's almost unexplainable. God's love for Israel is so big and expansive that it's almost like in Deuteronomy, it just doesn't fit within any particular reason. He loves because that's who he is. He loves because he loves. And so God co-opts Moses' life without asking, and God takes control of the narrative of Israel's story, not because he's a tyrant, but because he loves so much. And through the story, it's almost like God gets nothing out of it. Moses ends up being argumentative. Israel ends up being fickle. Pharaoh is a jerk the whole time. But God shows his love in this story in that while we were all of us train wrecks, God pursues us with an almost unexplainable kind of love. And that's how God co-ops our lives. And as frightening and as glorious as it is, I get to say right now, do you know that God is pursuing you? And he's pursuing you because, not because there's anything good in you. There may be lots of, I'm sure there's lots of wonderful things about you, but it's not because God is sitting out here and admiring you and saying, man, I'd love to get to know that person because they're amazing. That's not it. God is pursuing you despite the train wreck. And I hope that doesn't offend you. I hope that gives you hope. And I say I hope it gives you hope because if I, Jim, am confident that I have all my junk together and that therefore God looks at me and says, oh yeah, you're quite, quite fantastic, um, then what I have to do is either hide my train wreck or more likely I will never finally think I really need God. I will rely on my, upon my own autonomy. I will believe the... the the lie that says the path to true freedom is through my own, own relying upon my own resource. And if I do that, what I will find in the end is that all I have is myself. Which is to say, I will not have freedom in the end, I will have isolation. Which is the deepest fear underneath most of our fears, isn't it? That we would end up being alone. Autonomy doesn't lead us to freedom, it leads us to aloneness, isolation. But if God pursues me in my train wreck, if he pursues me even when I'm running from him, then it means that there is a love that is bigger than my very deepest fears, shames, failures, and all of the rest. And that means I can have hope despite anything. So God takes control of the narrative by co-opting Moses' life without asking permission. And he does it because he's pursuing Israel in an almost unexplainable kind of love. But now we need to add another piece to it, which is going to create tension. And the next 
thing we need to add is this. That when God takes control of the narrative of our lives, he does not tolerate our sin. And this is an odd one. Look at verse 5. So God springs the trap on Moses. God calls to Moses out of the burning bush. And then verse 5, he says this. Don't come too close. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place upon which you are standing is holy ground. Now, here's what I find odd. Do you feel the tension here? Moses, I'm down close with the suffering of my people, and I'm hearing them, and I'm going to come down, I'm going to bring them up, and I'm going to rescue them, and I'm coming close, but don't come too close, Moses. Stay there. What? What's God doing? Why the double message? Do you feel the double message? Okay, no. I mean, anyways, it's there. Um, when God takes control of the narrative of our lives, right in with, not despite, but right in with his almost unexplainable love is his perfect intolerance, so to speak, or hostility to our sin. And you got to feel the tension here. Because this is when our autonomy gets really threatened. But it's also when freedom breaks out. Slow down and stay with me. Remember last week, um, we said that all the parties in the story of Exodus are guilty. Moses and Pharaoh, Egypt and Israel, all of them in chapters 1 and 2 show deep signs of corruption. And you cannot read the book of Exodus or the rest of the Bible by simply dividing the parties into the good guys and the bad guys. We all like to do that. It's called tribalism. It's just hopelessly simplistic, however, and the Bible has nothing for it. God says to Moses, here, Moses, I am pursuing you and Israel because I love you in an almost unexplainable kind of love. However, Moses, do not mistake my love for indulgence. It's as if God says, Moses, I do not tolerate evil and I do not tolerate corruption. I do not tolerate sin. I don't tolerate it in Pharaoh. And I don't tolerate it in Israel. And I do not tolerate it in the nation of Egypt. And I do not even tolerate it, Moses, in you. So take off those shoes, Moses. And do not approach too close. Because it's as if God says, this area around the burning bush, it's as if he draws a line. This area around the, uh, the burning bush, Moses, is an evil-free zone. It's a corruption-free zone. It's a sin-free zone, which means it is holy ground. So if you step into it, understand that you will face me as your judge. And I will hold you accountable for the murder you have committed and for the many sins that you think are still secret. This is holy ground. And again, doesn't that sound harsh? Keep in mind, however, what we all of us know. You know, a judge who tolerates crime is called corrupt. And a God who tolerates injustice is also corrupt. And therefore, the very love that moves him to stand up to Pharaoh and say, No, Pharaoh, I'm warning you which he will say again and again, offering Pharaoh a place to change and repent, so also now when he first meets Moses, he gives Moses the same warning. Moses, I'm not playing around. 
I'm not playing around with Pharaoh's injustice, nor am I playing around with the injustice in you. And if he does anything else, then his love, if his love, if God's love ends up tolerating evil, then it is no longer love. It is an instrument of the evil it tolerates. And so God here calls out this space. It's holy ground. And he warns Moses to stay out or Moses will be burned with God's holy fire. See, the thing is, God loves us despite our train wreck, and at the very same time, God does not tolerate the causes of our train wreck. And we're going to see that all the way through Exodus. You see that in the temple. We're not going to go into it now, but you see it all the way through the Old Testament, and you see it preeminently, actually, in the New Testament, and it runs all the way through the Christian life. God pursues in love and doesn't tolerate the causes of our corruption, and he does both of those things at the very same time. How can, he, how can those things possibly go together? And the answer to that question, how those things go together, is answered in the last observation. When God takes control of the narrative of our lives, he leads us to freedom as he defines it. Not autonomy, but intimacy. Here's what I mean. So in our text, you can see that God promises Israel political liberation. But political liberation is not all that God means by freedom. It's a step on the road, but it's not the destination. Look at verse 12. God promises to bring Israel out of Egypt in order that they can worship. And you see, God wants them to worship not just anywhere, but at a specific location. He wants Moses to lead the people of Israel to that same area, that same holy ground, on that same mountain near that same burning bush. Now, why is that important? It's important because it shows that God wants to bring Israel to a type of freedom that is the opposite of autonomy. He wants to bring Israel to a type of freedom that is animated with intimacy with himself. Put differently, God wants to draw Israel into his presence. Now, there's still going to be some distance we're going to find. Israel can't yet come all the way close to God because of their sin. But God wants them, in a sense, as close to himself as they possibly can be. Bring them to this mountain where they can worship me. And the point is, freedom, in God's mind, is not just political liberation. Important as that is, it moves beyond that to intimacy. Intimacy with him. If God simply allows Israel to merely be liberated politically, then they'll go into their new land and they'll just end up as autonomous as Pharaoh was in the beginning. God's got a bigger vision for freedom, and his bigger vision for freedom includes political liberation and moves down forward into intimacy with himself. And you can see that most clearly when Jesus shows up. Because that's what all Jesus is about. Jesus comes to give that bigger freedom. Jesus is the only Israelite who's ever fully, freely able to enter God's presence fully and perfectly without being consumed in the fire. And he can do that because he is God himself with no corruption at all within him. But on the other hand, Jesus is fully also human, fully Israelite. And therefore, he voluntarily takes upon himself the penalty of Israel's corruption and all of our corruption. And bearing our sin, he goes into the presence of God and there is consumed in the flame of God's judgment when he dies upon the cross. But then everything begins working backwards because he comes back to life. 
on Easter Day. And he pours out his Holy Spirit. And do you know what the Spirit is called on Pentecost? It's pictured like fire. Why? Because when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, God is pouring out the fire of his presence into your life so that we become something like the burning bush, aflame with the presence and the intimacy of God, but not consumed. His fire and his intimacy and his unexplainable and expansive love is poured out upon you so that you live forever in the free and intimate, loving presence of God as your Father. That was always God's original plan, and Jesus is the only one that can fully lead us to that vision of freedom. And therefore, he wants to take control of the narrative of your life. Our autonomy makes us want to run the other way, and so he chases us down. And he deals with our corruption upon the cross, and he pours out his spirit within us. Some of us don't want to get caught. Still running. Um, Well, you've got good company. Moses didn't want to get caught. C.S. Lewis didn't want to get caught. Let me point out that neither of them regretted it after they got caught. C.S. Lewis said this. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even kicking and screaming. Who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to such a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compel them to come in, understood properly, plumb the depth of divine mercy, because the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation." God loves you even when you're running from him. And our prayer is that he will wear you down with his kindness. And you will find, as we surrender our autonomy to him, that we, we find a freedom that is the reason for which we were created. And those of us who are Christians, walking with Christ, don't believe the lie of autonomy Remember that God has poured out his Holy Spirit in you and you are to become holy ground. This space fully consecrated to intimacy with God as your father. You are to become a burning bush full of the power and the fire of the Holy Spirit. That fire of love and not consumed but pressed out in mission. So do not tolerate your sin any more than God does, but bring it to the cross of Christ and there find your freedom before the throne of God. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.